2: What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after
0: failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your
2: podcasts. Hello and welcome to Superfan Chats, where once again Superfan Sam and Superfan Hannah will be discussing all the latest goings-on in El Timpir, as well as a few of their own superfan theories. Now, in this episode, Sam and Hannah are going to be discussing episodes 16, 17, and 18. So, consider this your spoiler warning if you're not up to date with the latest events of El Timpir, You'll need to listen up to at least episode 18, Rally Together, unless you want some serious spoilers. We would also love to hear your own superfan theories. So you can find us on social media. We're at No Small Roles on Instagram and Twitter, and you can also find us on Facebook by searching for No Small Roles. But in the meantime, let's settle back and enjoy superfan chats in the company of Sam and Hannah. Take it away.
1: we're back with another episode of super fan chat hello i'm so excited
0: <laughs> me too uh i mean it's been a while
1: so this time we're going to chat the Fireheart arc or episode 16 to 18 with the fire hark fire heart
0: does that work or is that a bit like super han
1: no no it's- <laughs> <laughs> But with the amazing Sarah Gain playing Beacon, Fireheart, Button.
0: Oh, love her. But we are going back. So this is this is nine episodes from where we are yeah. at the moment. It was last year.
1: Before the winter holidays.
0: Of course. So we've got a lot to unpack.
1: Yes. <laughs> so we're just going to do 16 to 18 in this one. And we're going to do a little bit of recapping at the same time. But don't worry, there will be all the Elton Pier hot gossip in here <laughs>
0: all the
1: bits we loved <laughs> so you know a lot about episode 16
0: I do yeah I, I went back over it just to, to do you want the like general plot points
1: what happened refresh my memory
0: uh, so basically at the beginning we learned that the, the players hit level 4 so that means that as we go through this trilogy uh, they're going to be testing out their new abilities kind of started off with Gaius disappearing on the back of Bessie I think something to do with scheduling issues Chris couldn't be there to play, so Gaius just disappeared into the distance and the characters were just kind of like, ah well, I guess we'll see him later. Uh <laughs> we were introduced to uh Gubbins. This is uh Gwendolyn's therapy sock puppet who kind of came out for a group therapy session that some people were on board with and then Orin and Kidu were just kind of like uh, respectively like nah, not really for me. And then why are you such a Muppet? <laughs> Which was kind of cruel because Gwendolyn was having a crisis of confidence moment of like not really knowing what her journey is, whether she should be with these guys. And Enkidu's just like, you're a muppet. So, yeah, that happened and they eventually kind of settle down for bedtime, uh, which is when Enkidu kind of has a chat with one of his patrons. This time he's chatting to Hina, who's this tiefling that we've kind of seen. In Juno's vision. And then it just so happens that Juno was doing the watch with him. So, kind of seeing him having this conversation brings up the body swapping experience they had while fighting with Kral. And Enkidu let us know a little bit about uh, Hina, this uh, person that he m- massively respected who kind of tested him with this uh, getting into her room. And it's just, you know, she was kind of pleased with him for doing that. So, just as we're kind of like learning about that and, and Enkidu realizing that he'd seen. Gwendolyn in his vision they get attacked by a bunch of people who just like jump out of the woods I think somebody gets hit by a dart uh, and so fighting begins like the rest of them start waking up and like groggily trying to fight quite poorly and then in jumps this dreadlocked Badass kid traveler with a backpack pulls out his morning star and just goes to like, you know, slap happy town, bashing all over the place. He does some kind of like weird rage, magical rage thing where like twinkling lights start coming out of him and his AC goes up. Super cool. I mean, we love you, Sarah, and we love you even more for this. So, yeah, we had, uh, yeah, Deacon jumping in, uh, who then at the end of the fight, we kind of like, they wrap it up pretty quickly once the, these, uh, attackers realize that they don't have anything of monetary value and they kind of the ones that were there like scarper off into the woods like enkidu fires a eldritch blast into his bum uh <laughs> and then we start to learn a little bit more about deacon who is instantly lovable uh uh-huh. we hear about the, the this name, mysterious
1: deacon, Fire yeah, Heart
0: deacon fireheart button oh, Sarah, genius, genius. <laughs> This whole idea that that Fireheart is a given name uh, for his warrior name for when he he finds this character that he introduces to us as the warrior, this guy Silith Valia, who uh, he's heard about in tales from his father, from like legendary lore of this guy who supposedly like fought off an entire army with a needle and the the sun's first light. I think she says uh, that explanation. <laughs> but in order to find the warrior, she needs to return. This compass. She had a magical compass that only points to the warrior, but that has been stolen by somebody called. Remind me, Alec Ludder.
1: Yeah, Alec Ludder. And this person pops up a lot more.
0: He does, uh, particularly over this uh, this trilogy of episodes. But yes, this Alec Ludder came on board a ship that she was taking over from the Woden Isles, uh, same place that Orin is from, and basically took one of Deacon's bags in the process that just so happened to to have this magical compass in it. We find out that this ship was also carrying a large amount of a substance, a drug called frosting, which we love now. <laughs> but basically, frosting is a narcotic that can be used to make people more compliant. Yeah. Some of the characters knew about it, and some of the characters definitely don't. Particularly Gwendolyn. She thinks
1: she knows, though. She thinks she knows all about frosting.
0: Of course. Of course. Why wouldn't she? She loves frosting.
1: Uh (laughs) We get
0: on cake. (laughs) Oh, God. But we'll get to that. Yeah. And then uh, kind of going over the bodies. Uh, So I think it's Deacon and Enkida go over and they check out these bodies of the people that attacked them. And they find a couple of interesting things. So Deacon notices that on one of the fallen enemies, there was a hexagonal tattoo on the neck. And Enkidu finds a a note that is signed with this same hexagon. And it is an organization that Enkidu recognizes called the Hex, uh, who just so happened to be the team of evildoers that caused Enkidu's journey to begin. The reason why he's here at this point, all of that began with the Hex. So quite a big thing for Enkidu. But he finds a note in the pocket of one of these guys uh, that basically says that there is a target that they are supposed to make an example of uh, who is staying at the merry merry prince in Berrien fields so they have they have a new objective and they kind of chat about the hex a little bit mm-hmm. but kind of we when they get back to the group i think they were holding that little bit of information while orrin and Gwendolyn kind of wrap up the episode with this kind of cute conversation about a bit of like backstory explanation and we do learn a little bit about Gwendolyn and why she left the Rose family. Uh, she was betrothed to a guy called Colin DeBarge, who apparently was very wealthy, noble, but very dull.
1: Oh, Colin.
0: Uh, so she just kind of like Dwayne being more interesting, she decided to run off with him.
1: She threw over the nice guy for a fuckboy. Oh. Exactly. Ben. Oh, Gwen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what an episode. It was starting with the introduction of gubbins i mean
0: right i mean i love gubbins i love this idea of like a sock puppet he's got bunny ears and a a little button nose
1: oh it's so cute and the idea that gwen is so distraught by the sort of animalistic murder and sort of wanton destruction that she needs a bit of group therapy yeah and she needs to talk through a puppet to be able to do it and it was so vulnerable and so sweet and also hilariously awkward. I loved it. I loved every minute of that group therapy session.
0: It was weird because we, we'd we been listening. We'd had 15 episodes up to this point that we'd been starting to get to know the characters. And I, I think the last time that we chat about this, we were talking about how much of a badass Gwendolyn is, <laughs> you know, how she's always there in the fight. She's always dealing damage. She often does the last blow. Mm-hmm. And particularly with that, Crowl moment of like you know basically crushing his face into the ground yeah but then to see like straight back into this with a polar flip of like actually no that has messed with her head Mm -hmm. and she needs to revert to this this therapy instrument that she's had from her childhood yeah Uh, something that juna like instantly recognized it kind of brought home like no these are these are real people who are dealing with real issues here if things carry on as they are it's gonna have a massive effect on her like, you know, psychological progression.
1: Yeah. And there was something about it really made me rethink combat and like killing in DD, where actually your opponents, when your opponents are people, like characters that have backstories. So obviously, if you're like fighting an owlbear, you're like, ah, oh, it's trying to kill us. It's a big scary owlbear, it's a monster, it's a beast, kill it. But that moment where she doesn't she kill Trimpt as well? She just like,
0: yeah, yeah. Like
1: really cold-blooded, just brutally, I guess, murders trimmed. It made me go, <laughs> oh yeah, I think in a lot of d games we just kind of accept that we're just going to do killing and that's kind of part of it. But actually, Gwendolyn having a real reaction to that and her actions really brings home just how impactful that those actions can be. It was a really, it made me think as a listener and as a player in a DM, like, oh my God, yeah, that's really different. That's a really different reaction.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because at the time, it's very much that, like, fight or flight. She knew, and she she talks about this in this episode as well, like, she knew that they had to be stopped, that they had to die. But it was the, it was having to do that herself. Mm -hmm. And then how, and, you know, how many people died. It was was about, like, what was then going to happen to, um,
1: Oskin, little Oskin who she reflects yeah. as like her younger sibling
0: exactly she saw that and I mean also kind of a, a, a parallel to that the sock puppet Gubbins was given to her by her sister Prim yeah so that is a direct link to how she's going to feel about this this Oscin scenario who's basically all alone he's got um, the housekeeper with him
1: you know but they've like murdered the rest of his family Like exactly out.
0: and they're now about to stand trial
1: bloody hell <laughs> bloody hell Mm. i mean it's a lot (laughs) no wonder she needs a sock puppet and then when enkidu just shits all over her vulnerable moment because he's terrified by the vulnerability she's showing
0: (laughs) which he kind of does slap back because there's this whole thing about enkidu burning the books and why did he do that
1: yeah it's not planned i need to know that we can trust you because you just like you know we make a plan we stick to it and you just went off and basically caused way more destruction than was necessary i mean that like yeah she, she. She. had a point. I
0: mean, he did. He put a time limit on everything that they could do there, and I mean, I kind of feel like they got a lot of it done. But there is that bit in the back of my mind that's like, if they had more time, mm. what would they have discovered down here? What was in those books that were in the study mm. that were, you know, clearly the most important one? Were there magical items still in there? Would there have been information about the table that they weren't relaying to the group? You know that. There's so many things that that David probably had within that bunker area, but as we kind of learned through that conversation, was it entirely Enkidu making that decision? Like we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And when he is chatting with with Hina, his um, his patron, she does kind of say, "Oh well, you could always blame it on the other guy." Yeah. So there, yeah, there's a sense that maybe Enkidu is not quite in control of his own actions.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely worries the group. As we're getting all this backstory, we're getting everything to do with Enkidu. And then Deacon turns up.
0: Yeah, in comes Deacon to do some uh, some knocking about with his with his morning star of destruction. Awesome character. Uh, like straight in there with a bang as well, in terms of like their characterization. There was literally nobody in that party was like, No, you can't come with us. They loved Deacon from yeah. the moment that they came in, like really quick <laughs> bonding with Juna. Kidu was like, oh, you know, I'm impressed by what you're doing. He was showing off his like blade abilities and stuff.
1: Yeah. And they're like, oh, there's this ragey, gangly teenager. We love him. Bring him along.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Great. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> he was just a little kid, but they all just took a shine to him immediately. I mean, yeah, okay. d and yeah. It's what you have to do when you know that you've got a player coming in. But I think they just genuinely... Wanted this person to be around them.
1: Absolutely. And what was also great was the conversation about like what a compass does when he tried to describe the compass. Yeah. And then was like, "That's not how a compass works." And Deacon was like, "All right."
0: Yeah. He was like, "Have you ever seen a map?"
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Deacon's like, "I don't know what a map is. I just follow this pointy thing."
0: Because it's weird, isn't it? The, the the compass points in the direction of the warrior, but is it just in the direction of the warrior, or is it a bit like? I mean, I'm going a bit out here, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, that it's a compass that points to the thing that you want. Mm. Yeah, not really 100% sure what's going on there, but it was certainly taking Deacon somewhere and towards this person that we are learning about, this Vallier, the warrior.
1: Yeah, and we also learn that Deacon is a drug smuggler by accident. Yes. So he's just running ships and then turns out the ships are full of frosting, which, by the way, is a drug. Whoops. I guess the guys yeah. weren't that great that I was working with. So naive, but also really smart, very strange combo.
0: Yeah, like maybe not wise, but kind of still quick, quick-witted, quick conversationalist, but not necessarily choosing the best course of action or really looking behind the scenes. It kind of sounds like Deacon was very fixated on, no, this is my journey, this is where I'm going, and I don't really care what's going on around me. Yeah. But yeah, definitely this, yeah. this guy, Alec Luder, came on the ship, Took all the frosting, took a bit of Deacon stuff. And since then, he's been making his way towards Barren Fields.
1: And then we get even more about the Hex.
0: We so do, yeah.
1: That was a really clever introduction of this really shady, quite a scary gang. I love the name. I love the symbol. I love yeah. it just feels really spooky. And this mysterious target. We don't know who the target is or how they're all interwoven just oh and it's that little little taste of enkidu's backstory as well which is so yeah. like oh how does because i think daryl says like are these the people are they who i think it is and david's like yep and he's like oh all right and <laughs> and <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I don't i don't know fully if i'm i'm reading into this kind of knowing what what we know as we go forward and stuff but this this i don't know whether the hex part comes out of very much in kidu's backstory so it's like okay these these things happened to you and it was these guys that did it to you and kidu has a thing where he summons blades all these different blades and it was the hex that did it to him does that mean that like he's taken hex blade warlock literally
1: Ooh, that's interesting
0: i don't know if that's something that, that he and david were like or whether it's just What's the name of a good criminal organization? The Hex. That sounds good.
1: Well, that's really interesting because this links into what happens at the beginning of the next episode. Yeah. Which is we get a bit about Orange's backstory.
0: I mean, do you want to? Do you want to go on to the next episode? Do you want to tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, go on. Episode seventeen. Go on.
0: <laughs> possibly
1: one of my favourite episodes because of what happens. So, at the beginning of the episode, they reveal this note about the Hex and. Oren and Juna have a little sidebar about the fact that Juna saw his memories or Oren being chased across icy rooftops. And she was like, is who was chasing you the hex? And he basically says, yes. And there's a little detail um. about him fiddling with his leg brace. And so there's something about he got barged off the rooftop and that's how his leg got busted or something. But he doesn't explicitly say it because Ben is playing his cards so close to his chest.
0: It's so intriguing, isn't oh it? Oh my God, I <laughs> want to
1: know so much more. But I'm Gina, glad you had the same,
0: yeah, yeah. same logic as me, though, on that one.
1: So Juno really, like, she doesn't probe too much, which is a bit uncharacteristic for Juna, Detect thoughts herself. So then they travel to Berrian Fields and they find out that Lord Berrian of Berrien Fields, is a member of the Lord's Assembly. And he is one of the Lords who has decided he's going to make a claim to the throne because he has some sort of bloodline claim, some sort of heritage in there, but no one really... There are lots of minor Lords that are doing this and they're all kind of like all trying to make a bid for this empty throne because... Perished, the previous king, didn't have an heir, never married, and he was kind of like everyone thinks he was a pretty decent king. And you find out that the steward, Jarela Nevec, is holding off all these lords while they try and figure out who's going to be the best king. So Lord Berrien is basically trying to make a bid. So they arrive at the, the Berrien fields and they realize Lord Berrien's having a big rally to gain support for his claim to the throne. And there's loads of stuff happening, it's got a real festival vibe. And the Merry Prince is in the middle of the town, in the middle of this field with all these tents and this festival. So they're like, okay, well, <laughs> we'll have a look around. And Kidu very pointedly does not show any support for Lord Berian. The others are very <laughs> ambivalent about it because it might be a way in later. And Enkidu like drops this armband on the ground and like stomps on it. And is like, absolutely not. And everyone's like, All right, then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Classic Enkidu. Yeah,
1: like, okay, sure. Like, stomp on a perfectly good way in later because you're angry about the idea. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, really true to character. I love the way Daryl plays Enkidu so much. So they go to the Merry Prince because they think, oh, let's have a drink in a pub. And it turns out they can only get in under invitation by Lord Berrien. And Gwen tries to pull rank to get in and the persuasion role I think ends up being a nine so they're like well we'll ask (laughs) we'll ask Lord Berrien we'll definitely ask him but you can't just come in and she gets she gets very like do you know who I am and Juna tries to charm person and absolutely fails so they kind of have to go (laughs) elsewhere but when they're doing that Enkidu decides to show the guard the note from the head which then increases the guard around the Merry Prince and gets them to start locking it down. And Deacon's really annoyed. Deacon just wants to go in and like knock heads. And Enkidu's like, no, 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 because if there are more guards, it's more likely we'll see unsavory characters going in and out. So there's a real split in how they want to deal with it. And Deacon kind Mm. of gets sort of mollified by the idea of like, okay, we'll go and find something else to do. maybe find another way in. Um, And Gwen says, oh, I'll I'll have a fight with you later if you wanted to do some punching. And he's like, all right, (laughs) so they decide to go see if they can find the compass anywhere and they go and they sort of wander around the festival and sort of want to look for frosting. So Gwen finds a cake stall and buys lots of (laughs) cakes. And it also comes out that she has no idea how much anything costs because she's very privileged. So she's like, how much is cake? How much cake can I get for a gold? So she gets all these cakes and she does some very persuasive talking to this like teenager at the cake stall about like and who's the person I'd speak to if I wanted to work on your cake stall where she's obviously (laughs) trying to be very clever and it's actually quite obvious but Gwen oh bless her she tries she tries so hard she thinks she's done so well so she brings the cakes back and she's like look I found frosting and everyone's kind of like okay Gwen sure but then they eat the cakes and they all have to make a con save and guess who <laughs> fails
0: the oh. only one who fails <laughs> is Gwendolyn.
1: so gwen actually does find actual the drug frosting and then gets very frosted
0: we love gwen frosted. oh my goodness just it's saying
1: hilarious so then they have a bit of a clever idea they go and buy more cakes and orin casts purify food and drink so they walk up to Arabella, the lady who's signing up volunteers, eating the cakes, which are now fine, pretending they've all been frosted. Obviously, Gwen doesn't have to pretend. But they can try to volunteer in the kitchen and get into the Merry Prince because all the cake is coming from inside the Merry Prince. That's where it's all being made. Arabella says, no, we don't have any space in the kitchen, um, but you can volunteer. Here's some armbands. Deacon sort of distracts her. They all sneak in. And Juna tries to take the clipboard to just see Arabella's handwriting because she wants to forge a note to say, we're kitchen volunteers, which (laughs) Enkidu and Gwen go off on a special mission to get some pen and paper. (laughs) And that's when some of Enkidu's backstory comes out because Gwen in her highly frosted state says, I saw you with the king in the vision. And then Enkidu basically talks to her a bit like a child and swears her to secrecy about the fact that he was <laughs> he did break into the king's room and also but offer to serve the king. And he says, if anyone finds out, we're all going to be dead. So it's just got to be you and Gubbins and Gubbins doesn't really have a mouth. So it'll be fine.
0: I love the fact that he's revealing this to a frosted person, especially a frosted person that he doesn't always get along with. I know, it's
1: so (laughs) funny. But you can really hear, like, Daryl playing it with the panic in Enkidu's voice where he's like, Oh, yeah. Oh, God, she knows. Okay, I've got to, like, damage control this situation. (laughs) So they manage to forge this note. Juna does really well. They go into the kitchens. They find people are mixing frosting into the cakes. Gwen tries to stick her face in it. And that means she's going to be frosted forever. Juna uh, also swipes a handful. And then still not quite sure on what the connection is between Alec Ludder, Lord Berrian, and the Hexes. So they're all trying to work it out. They question Deacon, who mentions he worked for a gang called the Pushkin Gang, and the leader was Frink. And that could be something to do with Alec Ludder, but they're not quite sure how that links. So they're not really still not really sure who the Hex is after. So they try and pull a fast one to sneak around the Merry Prince um and go look for alec ludder deacon suggests dressing up as maids which everyone's (laughs) up for except think he do and they decide to head upstairs and they start sneaking around and they hear something in a room and they push the door open and there is Guy Stark bollock naked except for his mask and that's where that episode ends
0: what a gem oh my god the hedonism, the drugs, the nudity. I love it. I mean, it was just such a big episode for like, you know, especially with the previous one being quite nihilist uh, in terms of like, you know, how the party are feeling. This was a really nice one, particularly for Gwendolyn because, she, and for Grace playing her, because she just got to lay loose and just be whatever she wanted to be. There, there was clearly like no instruction from David. It's like, no, this is this is how you would be on Frosting. Mm-hmm. She was just being so open
1: (laughs) yeah a lot like a very impressionable child which was so sweet and funny that she could really broach things with such an innocence that like maybe sober gwen wouldn't be able to without getting some really spiky repercussions yeah so that enkidu actually was really kind to her when she revealed that bit of his backstory and it was actually a really lovely interaction I thought it was really sweet.
0: Yeah, I mean, he he could have just slapped her down and been like, never talk about that again. Because somebody frosted would be like, okay, I'll never talk about it again.
1: Mm. But he
0: chose to, that's probably the most gentle we've seen Enkidu be. Yeah. While also telling something so dangerous. Yeah. Particularly here, you know, to be talking about meeting the king when you're at a rally to find a new king. Not really the place to be doing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's also the um, I think part of that as well was trying to keep Gwen away from the bard tent because yeah. there was because she wanted to look for her blue-haired lover, Dwayne Fabulosa. And obviously the rest of the crew are wondering if Gaius is around. So they're trying to keep Gwen away from
0: <laughs> Because <laughs> they do they do see somebody in the tent, don't they? They Do they see the person that was supposedly travelling with with Dwayne Fabulosa? I think that's the person playing yeah. when they're... Yeah, they do. Yeah, that's so the always... person
1: playing. And turns out Dwayne screwed them over as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, um, yeah, I, I saw that in the next episode. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. quite interesting. What was it? Heroica, I think the name was.
1: Oh, yeah. God, that's a good one. It's yeah. a great
0: name, isn't it? Yeah. And probably not a reoccurring character considering what happens in this next bit. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so it, it's quite interesting that David has opened it up now to to show us a little bit of what this world is going to be. Like we now know about the Arcanist Consortium and how they kind of run things. We now know that there are uh, you know contenders for the throne, particularly Lord Berion, who I think is like red flag, silver wings.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's his emblem.
0: But, you know, why, why is the frosting here? A lot of these people look in this kind of chill, relaxy vibe, even from the moment that they enter town. So, you know, what, what's really going on here to kind of draft people into voting for Lord Berrien when the time comes or sticking up for him in a more kind of like combat scenario? Yeah. It's a bit sinister.
1: Yeah. There's something really, there's like a really unsettling undertone to this, like very bright, happy, chilled. Like, I've just got this idea of this big hippie festival in this sort of like little village, a bit Glastonbury vibe. Yeah. And then, but underneath it all, it's like there's something very unnerving happening in this place where, you know, people don't realize they're eating drugged food and drink. I mean, maybe they do realize and they're like, I'm fine with this. But it seems like, with the way Gwen purchased the cake, people aren't being told that actually they're, they're full of frosting,
0: the drug. Oh, definitely. Yeah. This, this like royal, sinister royal hunt underneath it all from something that seems quite innocent on the outside. Like, if, if these guys hadn't known about frosting when they came in, if that hadn't happened, that experience that they had with the, with the hex, with meeting Deacon. They probably would have gone in there and been like, Oh yeah, I'll just eat the cakes and Mm. maybe not pass those saves and then it would have been more than just Gwendolyn having fun in that episode.
1: Yeah, they could have get sucked into something. They could have gotten sucked into something so much more against their will than they actually like except for gwendoline and all of them rally round to look after her which is also really sweet
0: and it kind of seemed like they really needed to as well because she was just up for doing anything you know going to talk <laughs> to anyone going to yeah. break into anything i mean like you say she literally when she got into the pub stuffed her hand into a bag and i think it was like licking her fingers or something you know she yeah. would have gone to town if they hadn't been yeah. there to take care of her. Oh, Can you imagine that just with, with all five of them? It
1: really made me think about, like, the drunk girl at the nightclub and everyone's like, no, no, stay away from all the creepy predatory men over here. Come on, let's go get you some water. Come on, let's go go have you sit down in the loo and get you, get you some water. And if you need to be sick, we'll hold your hair back. Like, it really made me think of that sort of dynamic
0: of Aww. looking
1: after your completely slaughtered mate in a pub, in a club. And it's like, oh, this is not the place for you to be so happy to chat to everyone. You are not okay.
0: <laughs> but yeah, it's very interesting hearing about Enkidu. And it, this is something mm. that, that plays through this, uh, this trilogy and kind of the bits that are, you know, coming up next is that Enkidu, who was very much a closed book before, as, as all of them kind of are, we're starting now to hear the, okay, this guy, quite important really
2: Mm.
0: we knew that there were people in his head but we're starting to learn more about like who they are and that they are people from his life you know his his friends we know this from the hina experience and yeah now we get this little bit of context about them sneaking into the palace and being there at, at the foot of the king's bed yeah. I mean, if, if anybody found him and found out that he'd been doing that, that is, I think they say punishable by death.
1: Yeah, there's a real, it really gives you context for why Enkidu is so guarded because his involvement with royalty actually makes him a really wanted person. So it makes so much more sense now why he's so spiky and so guarded and so scared of revealing anything and yet at the same time in he has this thing where he can't be 100% in control of himself so he will give himself away is such a wonderful character conflict which is why he's so compelling to listen to
0: yeah I love it I've... <laughs> I'm kind of wondering if this is why he, you know, punched an old woman in the face uh, a while ago. Whether maybe that wasn't Daryl's decision. Maybe that yeah, was. No,
1: no, it was definitely it was one of the other people inside <laughs> him.
0: Absolutely. She, no, she she looked at him and saw that there was some kind of dealing with a king, and then Kitty's just like, no. no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's exactly it, and that's why he just had to act and not communicate to anyone what his idea was.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, more of this, please, Daryl. We love it.
1: Absolutely. We're missing one of our our favourite of the gang, Gaius, who turns up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, finally. And and good to see, well, like in your imagination, see so much of him.
1: Nice one. Nice one.
0: I just love that he's got his mask on. (laughs) He's just clearly having a great time.
1: So what happens in episode 18 then?
0: We pick up exactly where we left off there. Uh, It is established that uh, Gaius has been playing a game called Strip Card Game um <laughs> the name was coined by chris watts himself basically he he has asked at the beginning of the episode like how much is is guy actually wearing at this point point? and chris confirms that he's wearing a mask he's wearing his normal mask and a cravat that is not his own and that's it uh. other than that he's stark body naked uh he's playing uh, in this room with uh, hilda who is quite a wealthy noble quite um well known throughout this area seems to know everybody Uh, And there are three or four other nobles who kind of say little drunken, potentially frosted comments every now and then. But we do kind of, like, find out as this is going on that um, this is a little bit sinister. Maybe, but it's kind of brushed over. I only really noticed it through re-listening to it. But Hilda does say, because they kind of ask Gaius if he's heard of this Alec Ludder. And Gaius then puts that to the room and then she's like, oh, yeah, Alec Lutter. Yeah, he's um, he's in this room. He brought us a little something, but we're not supposed to say anything about that. Shh. So was Hilda the one who ordered all of these narcotics to the Merry Prince? Is she connected with Lord Berrien? Something that we don't really get into. But it is pointed out that Hilda is not eating the cakes that are in this room. She's only going for the drink but the other people around the table are eating the cake.
1: I didn't even notice that.
0: I know, right? I only, I only noticed that oh, through David, listening to it so again. Oh, so subtle. It's juicy, isn't it? It's so juicy. And of course, nobody the in the detail. room, nobody in the cast really picked up on that or not audibly anyway. Super interesting.
1: Hilda, secretly the big bad evil guy of the whole campaign.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we saw Hilda drunk and she is very, very drunk in this and she's very, very up for Everything that the, the people are saying, she's uh, she loves a bit of Deacon. Uh, she loves Enkidu. I think she propositions him later on. So you know she's in a merry mood. But I wonder whether we're going to see this character again. But anyway, back to the events of of episode eighteen. I thought I'd just get that point out there. We find out that uh, the compass that Deacon has been looking for is now in the possession of Hilda, and this was given to her by Alec Ludder, and is supposed to then go on to Lord Berrien. So there is definitely some kind of connection there. But in order to get it back, D can suggest that they play a round of cards. And this is where David ingeniously comes up with three-card brag using dice. So they roll a D8 for the first one, they roll a D6 for the second, roll a D4 for the third, and based on the strength of those three cards, they either win everything that's in the pot or they go home with nothing. And it's very much like you, you get dealt the first card and you can either up the ante by putting a new bet in or you can fold. It's that simple. Right, so this is what I've put down here. I think this is everything that they put in uh, to the table to up the ante. Bear in mind, this is four players. (laughs) We have one compass, two daggers, one hand axe, a set of darts, a morning star, Enkidu's black and red glowy greatsword of the Dravanian royal palace, a silver pearl necklace, and a money pouch with a combined value of 600 gold, a bonnet, a jacket, a petticoat a tabard, the Rose family pendant, Guy's mask, and Kral's bony finger. Oh of yeah,
1: Juna's like, this magic <laughs> finger, and it's like, oh Juna, no!
0: I mean, everyone's like, I don't remember you picking up. She did pick it up when the place was burning, so <laughs> I can understand why people didn't notice it. But yeah, it's just such a weird thing to put in there. It's like, oh no, it's a really magical bony finger. She's yeah. like, okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> Let's play but it's a, it's a very big game. It kind of looks like it's going to go in Hilda's favour. She's like smiling throughout the thing. And you've got Enkidu like looking at the ceiling and quite desperate. I think even Juna is pretending like she's doing well, but in the end has four or something, like a combined value of four. But Juna is really useful in this because right at the beginning of the game, she casts Guidance on Deacon to add a d4 to a role later on. And then at the same time, she's also, at one point in the game, I think after the, the second draw, she casts her Detect Thoughts for the first time on Hilda and is able to find out the two cards that she previously got and then messages this to Deacon to let Deacon know, like, she's doing quite well, but at this point I'm going to fold. But with this, Deacon is like, okay, well, for my third one, I'll use the Guidance. As it plays out and the cards are revealed, you find out that Juna has the four and enkidu has eight so again not a massive score hilda has uh 13 and then deacon somehow reveals that in a game where the maximum number of points you can get is 18 deacon has 19 and nobody bats an eyelid about this it's just like oh well done you win uh so yeah deacon somehow manages to win everything on the table and kind of starts divvying it out including guys clothes well, this is the thing. So Gaius's clothes are in the corner. They weren't part of this particular game. But as soon as his mask was mentioned, oh, let's, let's get Gaius' mask off and see what's going on under there. Gaius took that moment to kind of leave the room uh, to escape and go to the toilet. But while he's out there, before coming back, he hears this scream and ev- eventually uh they kind of like oh yeah there's an assassination attempt going on here somebody's going to be made an example of so he kind of like bursts back into the room you know wang out uh <laughs> and stuff <laughs> so saying like oh somebody's being murdered upstairs so everyone just kind of like grabs their stuff gives gaius a chance to uh, i think he gets trousers back on but he goes up for this fight topless and uh yeah they get upstairs to find that these members of the Hex are very much wearing the same things that they found uh, on the people that attacked them in the woods. They have to fight against these guys, and they've got uh, all these different abilities that they're throwing into the fight. I mean, it's awesome. There's this one moment where, like, Orin and Juno are effectively, like, Emperor Palpatining, this one guy, just uh, shocking grasping him on the floor. And then Enkidu's like, I see what they're doing there, and I stab him through the heart. <laughs> but everyone gets a chance to try out all these things that they picked up from level four and ways that they respect their characters just to remind you that these guys are pretty damn good at fighting but yes they get up there and they're fighting these hex and they notice that there is a now very dead body on the floor throat slit bleeding out i don't think at this point even a, a, like a, a spark of life in them, but it's Juna that runs over halfway through the fight and casts Spare the Dying oh, to kind yes. of keep this guy alive. And then at the end of the fight, Orrin is able to use his bees to kind of like, you know, stitch up those wounds a little bit, which is good because we find out that this person on the floor is Alec Ludder, uh, the person who took the compass and did all these dodgy dealings with the frosting. But unfortunately, because of the nature of like having your throat slit and then bees like working on it, For gameplay reasons, uh, it's decided that this person is still unconscious. Uh, So kind of with the rapidly approaching guards that Hilda went to get and, you know, is kind of like ordering them in the room, the group decide that they're not going to hang around and be seen to be doing something dodgy. They kind of stay there for Hilda to say, oh, you know, these guys were really good. But then they kind of scarper. But not before the standard, checking everyone's pockets and finding out if there's anything there. And there's a very interesting moment that happens with Guy. When he looks in, uh, there was a guy with a crossbow in the corner, kind of behind like everything, and Guy rummages through those pockets and he finds a note in there. It's very similar to the first one. It says like, you know, Merry Prince Alec Ludder, and it is signed by someone called Traer. Now, no information is given about who Traer is. We assume that Traer is something to do with the hex. And nothing is really said or discovered however the cast make a big deal of chris's face at this point and hit the kind of the back and forth that happens between him and david so guy the name treya probably means something to guy which has my head spinning like oh my god was guy a member of the hex you know uh, why why does he carry a sword what like he's constantly lying like what is really going on here we don't really get a chance to Discover that because it's decided that nobody would have been looking at Guy's face there, particularly that point he was in the room. All the stuff they were going in the the corner.
1: Everyone's searching everything. Yeah,
0: exactly. So this is something that the chris is going to be able to keep for gaius going forward you know something that we can maybe learn about later down the line
1: oh him and orrin are so mysterious
0: i know i know but guy is like purposely mysterious orrin just doesn't really talk whereas guy loves to to lie about it all and and come up with some complete fabrication of what his life's been so far which i don't know i feel like it that's kind of worse because <laughs> it's very much like you know you can only take so much
1: yeah, it's rubbish
0: like, from somebody before like you just pointed, don't believe anything they say. It's like
1: pointed misdirection as opposed to yeah. just not really fancying a chat.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Orin just doesn't really like the focus to be on him. Yeah. I'll just go over here with my my bees can talk to you. <laughs> um, but the episode actually finishes off quite nicely. They kind of decide that they're all gonna go off in different directions, but then because of the state that Gwendolyn is, is in, in her frosted state uh she decides that they all need to dance to go to the bard tent and have a dance oh God. uh so most of them head over there like deacon guy i think enkidu is there as well with with Gwendolyn and all kind of like throwing shapes and stuff but the mention of the bard tent does force juna and orin to talk about the person that they saw the bard the previous uh well before they even went into the the merry prince and they decide that they're not going to talk to Gwendolyn about it now, but they do decide to go and have a chat with this bard. Uh, so they they have a lovely chat with Heroica Udak.
1: Oh, that's that goes really poorly, doesn't it? They really Yeah, it doesn't go off. well.
0: <laughs> they kind of, they go over with this whole idea of like wanting an autograph. But then when they say, uh, he's like, oh yeah, who should I sign it for? Dwayne. Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically the response. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that Excuse was an interesting
1: tactic, really.
0: <laughs> it was. It was funny. It was really funny, but it basically shut this guy down straight away. Aww. Uh it was basically just trying to get rid of them. But it it kind of sounds like this guy went through very, very similar experiences to what Gwendolyn went through. Yeah. Uh the, the very much Dwayne was really interesting, they were having a great time, and then all of a sudden asked for all of his money, took a horse and just scarpered. So is left very jilted really kind of hates Dwayne Fabulosa at this point and is done with them.
1: Oh, we don't like Dwayne. We don't like Dwayne. We
0: don't. But I mean, Gwendolyn does. So, mm. or does she? I don't know. Mm. It's more just wants to find him again to figure out how she feels about it, uh, particularly at this point. I
1: feel like by the time she does find him again, there might be, it might have gone from, I can't wait to see him again to, I can't wait to see him again so I can stab him.
0: Yeah. Which I think we'd all be on board for.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Unless it turns out, like, we had a No Small Questions the other day, and Chris was asked if Gaius under that mask is Dwayne Fabulosa, <laughs> which he denied. But then Guy would deny that, wouldn't he?
1: He denies everything. Damn it!
0: <laughs> you find, like, brown hair dye in his bag. It's like, no, it's not normally blue. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a cute end of the episode, because they do that, and then they all go off, and they, they dance the for the rest of the day, I think, before they then head off in their, their different directions. These guys moving off towards, uh, off towards Vernock Rise. Yeah. So yeah, big, big trilogy in terms of setting up this world a lot more fleshed out than it was before. Because we, yeah. we knew Tillisham. we knew everybody in Tillisham as well. And, you know, that, that kind of closed off prologue story
1: small town yeah
0: introduction of characters
1: yeah and that was sort of like the group cohesion there's a mystery we're introducing elements it's a good adventure and now it's like oh this is actually situated in a much wider context you guys and it's like oh how is that gonna play out then
0: i think this might be my favorite sequel as well Mm. they always say like sequels are Awful, and they're never as good as the first season. But I thought this was really good because, yeah, you oh, know, no, it's great. They they came in with like, actually, we're not okay. Like there there are problems. We didn't discuss all of this, and they gave us so much of like, you know, we got so used to the the group unit, and we got a chance to see them almost splitting apart, starting to come apart at the seams. And then a reason for them all to bond together again, you know, with the dancing at the end, it showed like, oh no, we do all get along. Yeah, okay, Gwendolyn's frosted, but maybe she kind of needed that.
1: Yeah, I'm really tempted to drop some uh, group therapeutic process theory on this, but I'm going to save it. (laughs) I'm going to save it for another superfan chat because there's so much about how groups work and the sort of like process of a group and the idea of like, all coming together and then fragmenting and coming back together again. And there's like different phases that groups go through. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating to apply it to this group because they're all so interesting and at really different points on their journeys and so wounded in their own different ways. And just the meshing of, I mean, you know, even just the ages, like Gwendolyn's so young and June is so old. And then you've got such an array in between, that it's really interesting looking at like the combination of life experiences that are in there and how they're navigating that and trust. And it's just a really fascinating group dynamic that is also absolutely hilarious. I love it.
0: I feel like this might be bonus content. If you're coming out with uh, you know, <laughs> <group me psycho-analyses laughs> the you Let me psychoanalyze
1: the group. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. We'll talk to David. Oh, you Patreons of uh, tea caddy level, uh, you now get access to super fan hands.
1: <laughs> super fan hands, like corner. Woo! <laughs> uh,
0: I mean, that could be an episode all of its own thing. Oh
1: uh, my God. <laughs> where I just sit and like chat, like psychology of. I mean, it's really tempting, but... Also, this is more fun.
0: <laughs> well, you know that David takes notes while we're doing this, so he's just, oh yeah, good idea, yeah, oh, right, <laughs> write that down. We'll save that for the end of um of season two. You could just come back and psychoanalyze everybody. But <laughs> I
1: take it down to a completely different level. I'd say that one of my favourite things was opening this episode with a brilliant dick joke about Gwendo- Gwendolyn's never seen so much flesh, and I think it's Benny goes, oh, not that much flesh.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I think that was Sarah um, oh, as no, sarah yeah. It was so,
1: <laughs> so funny. I can't, well, wow. whoever did that joke, I'm sorry if I've misattributed it in my mind. It was hilarious.
0: It was so good. Who doesn't have a good penis joke? <laughs> ben did the setup, didn't he? Oh, yeah. uh, I think we were we were chatting about um, this in, in No Small Questions as well. It's just Chris being asked, you know, have you had any frosting? He's like, no, no, you know, I'm just... Just drunk and Just playing making. cards. <laughs> Which gives you a real good insight into what Gaius is like. Oh, particularly yeah. when he says he's so good at cards and so good at gambling and everything. It's and see him in this state. And, and the group kind of coming in with all these nobles and they're all in various kind of states of undress.
1: I mean, it's it's classic bard behaviour really, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Oh, 100%. But yeah, I, I like I say, I do wonder what's going on with Hilda, whether we're going to see her again or we'll find out later that actually this person was quite important in... The, you know, Lord Berrien and his mm. kind of push for the throne. Is she the one that's supplying the narcotics? Wasn't Lord Berrien even oh, here or it's is it...
1: so sinister that if Lord Berrien's in on it, he is essentially drugging people to get support for his claim to the throne. I mean, he's not a good guy if he's in on it. But they didn't get to, they didn't question Alec Ludder. so who knows? Yeah. It could have been Ludder operating under his own steam and going... You know what, I'm fully behind Lord Berry, and so I'm going to try and like artificially sort of like swell the ranks and get more people in. And the way I know how to do this is through my criminal underworld. So I'm going to do that. (laughs) And that was, you know, that's Alec Ludder's idea, or Lord Berry could be in on it. And then you've got a super shady, incredibly corrupt person going for the throne.
0: Oh, God. It does make you wonder like how long the like the after effects of frosting last Mm. like is it literally just you you have a little bit you're given a bit of persuasive argument towards a certain thing but then after a while you're able to make your own decision again or is it a bit more like inception where once the idea is planted depending on like how deep it's planted and like the the social experience that they then have is that enough to kind of influence that decision in the long term? does make you wonder whether it's just, or is it just a case of like, you know, they're signing up names in support on these sheets and they're more compliant to do it then. And then it's the written like, well, all of these people have called for Lord Berrien to ascend to the throne.
1: Right, exactly. It's a really, it's like, yes, because David says that when Gwen eats it, you know, that like a, a small dose will last a couple of hours and then obviously later she takes a whole handful and he's like, well, that's her for the rest of the day. But it, <laughs> it does beg the question of like, is it like the modified memory spell where when you, you have it and then it only lasts for a certain amount of time but the effect of it influences the way you feel about that memory the whole time or is it more like charm person where after an hour, you know, you've been charmed and you were under the influence of something you're gonna be rightfully pissed off about being manipulated. So, but we don't know. We haven't had an in-depth analysis of Frosting.
0: Yeah, which you would have thought if it was the charm person effect or friends or, you know, anything of that kind of level. If they did know about it, surely that would point them into a like, no, I'm not supporting Lord and If anything, you know, I'm completely against him and we'll go against it. So, you know, you kind of, you get the impression that Frosting is probably doesn't have that after effect. Maybe you know that there's been something in your system but you don't necessarily know that that's what influenced those decisions that day. It would be really interesting to see the mechanics of frosting because, I mean, it's such a powerful component. I mean, if you manage to get it into somebody's system.
1: I love it when DMs make up fantasy drugs. It makes me so happy when they do that. Yeah. Like Matt Mercer making up all these different drugs in Critical Role. And now we've got David making out frosting. I just, I think it's fascinating what they decide the drugs are going to do in their in their worlds and who takes them and how to get hold of them and stuff. And that's really fascinating.
0: I, I just genuinely think this is a game changer. If you had any way to kind of like, if you could put it into a dart or something like that.
1: I mean, Juno has got a whole pouch of it. She could put it in a, yeah. a bunch of people's Twain Tide, couldn't she?
0: I mean, she's got
1: says yeah. Gina. No,
0: it's full of frosting. <laughs> <laughs> she's also, I think, I think she's got the catapult spell. Oh so you can put like a little bit of frosting in a catapult and just like fire it. Don't give her ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they know what they're doing. This is just me being like, how would I, how would I weaponize frosting?
1: I bet Vicky's got everything up her sleeve. I bet she's got it like unlocked. Oh,
0: but two or three hours of effect without. Any kind of concentration checks or anything like that, and it, mm-hmm. you know, once they failed that save, that is it. They don't, they don't continue to try and pass that saving throw. That's them done. That yeah. is terrifying.
1: I mean, Gwen didn't try to sober up, and none of them really tried to do anything to sober her up. So I wonder if they'd like dunked her head in a bucket of water or something. Whether they would have done something. But you're right; there there didn't seem to be any like. Oh, they're a bit drunk. Give them some water and a plate of food, and they'll be. You know. Soak up the alcohol a bit and they'll be all right in a few hours. It was very much like, that's it. Yep,
0: yeah, you'll be like this for a few hours now. And yeah, when you know that it's by the end of the day, and that's without taking any more, that's with excessive dancing for ages. I mean, they were in a conga at one point, quite <laughs> <Yeah>. cute. <laughs> but you know, none of that was enough to to break her out of it by the end of that day. Uh, sorry, I've just thought of something uh, when we were chatting to Sarah Gain. I think you were here for this as one of the the patrons of the Oh yeah the no small questions yeah she had basically said that she was really looking forward to before the game seeing how Deacon would work with Gwendolyn. Yeah but never got that chance because Gwendolyn was was completely opposite. off off
1: offer tits oh Gwen (laughs) oh and it it really it was so interesting after seeing like you said earlier like the raw murderous power of Gwen to then have this like completely innocent, childlike, docile creature who is the same person following everyone around for these
0: episodes. Yeah, it it just um it, it showed you her innocence, her age, really. Because yeah. we we kind of we sometimes look as like Oren being the young one because he's quiet because he's a little bit smaller. But I think the youngest person in this group, she's barely twenty. Yeah. I think it's uh established at some points, and she's you know lived this like sheltered life that she's now you know come out and she's like no I can hold my own but it's almost like she went so far with that that she then had some kind of like crisis of personality mm. didn't really know who she was in this this grand scheme of things or who she was becoming that she then regressed into like sock puppet and it's it's almost like she needed look, this look
1: at the psychoanalysis
0: i i mean i'm doing it poorly because you that actually know amazing. what you're talking about oh good you're hey bang well done. on <laughs> well done me i did um psychology for AS uh, um, yeah. I I mean I sat there and I drew pictures I, <laughs> I didn't really learn all the terminology but uh I, I, why am I saying that to somebody who does therapy but um All right.
2: <laughs> you, um,
0: <laughs> I, do I that wasn't my very psychology good at
1: it. AS as well so oh, good. for hey. <laughs> all of us.
0: <laughs> but yeah kind of seeing her do this I feel like that that incident with the frosting And just gave her a chance to really enjoy herself and Mm. not take everything so seriously. Yeah, And even, you know, be able to chat to people that she normally has so much friction with, with happiness and kind of whether she'll remember all of it perfectly or not, I'm not sure. But at least she has one memory of Enkidu actually, not necessarily taking her seriously, but being there to support her. Yeah. Like 100% in that moment, his super objective was to take care of her yeah, and keep her away from trouble and appease her a little bit with some, yeah, like truly, truly deep yeah, backstory. Yeah,
1: it felt like a real caring moment where he was really able to show that he actually did want the best for Gwen. Like he wanted to help keep her away from Dwayne in case he was at the bard tent and that she would be absolutely crushed in her frosted state. Yeah. He could really see how vulnerable she was and instead of being like, I can't deal with this. He really went into protector mode, and that was actually really sweet. And it gives me hope for Gwen Kidu.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have everything crossed. (laughs) I really like them as a pairing. I I just
1: love the friction.
0: Everyone can see it, and it is kind of like, you know, I can see them both working together. You know, he will be able to give her a few more wiles, and then she'll be able to kind of like soften this. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, vulnerability.
0: And speaking of like softer sides, definitely not showing his softer side when he pulled out that greatsword, which for me, I was like, okay, yeah. this is the first time that we've seen this and you're using it to up the ante. Because the way he described it, it was a massive silvery greatsword yeah. with the symbol of the Dravanian royal house on it, the royal arms on this blade, and it was glowing black and red.
1: And he's just going to chuck it on the table.
0: Exactly as as a betting piece, and I just I was there like. Firstly, why have we not seen this in gameplay so far? Is it just when he's rolling for his weapons, this number hasn't been coming up? Maybe it's a crit or something like that. Mm. But also, what does this weapon do?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Just
0: and uh, makes me wonder
1: spooky it's spooky. about that whole
0: hex blade thing yeah is this the blade
1: the other thing that i'm wondering about whether we'll see the repercussions and maybe we can talk about this in the next episode of superfan chats because it comes up again is gwen throwing around her family name yeah oh boy i feel like that's going to have some serious repercussions further down the line
0: and uh, it's, it's interesting because it didn't it didn't work in this context but we know that she does use that tactic again and this is clearly something that that Gwen has been able to do in her life. You know, she's she's been high status, and her family is known. We we got that sense from when she was at the Vondels, and they were kind of mm-hmm. saying like, yeah, they're not that rich, but they're they're invaluable.
1: But Tillison was a small town.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: And we're going to see in later episodes she pulls it out again, and it actually does have some clout. But I'm really worried for her because she we get obviously with her story about Colin DeBarge. We know that she left her family disgraced, running off with Dwayne. And now she's splashing her family name around. I wonder how fast the news of what she's done is going to travel. Yeah, Like at the moment, it feels like she's ahead of it. And people aren't going, oh, you're Gwendolyn Rose. But <laughs> I feel like that's going to happen at some point that people are going to go, yeah. oh, Rose, I've heard about you. Scandal because if anyone's watched Bridgerton, we all know that society types love a good scandal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but Also, Colin de how much influence does this guy have?
1: Mm, yeah, God, the de family.
0: Because all these, all these kind of, you know, she's clearly part of, like, the upper echelon of society. You know, her family would have counted above the Vondels if the Vondels had been like, we've got all this money, we'll bring you in to do this work. And Lady Vondel herself did say that, that the Rose family was invaluable to those of high society. So they are known. Colin de DeBarge has a lot of money. Clearly, like, you know, a lot of influence within that family. Are they looking for her? Is the Rose family looking for her? And she's leaving this, like... Trail of breadcrumbs behind her. Not
1: even breadcrumbs. She's just throwing loaves of bread around.
0: <laughs> she's put a bakery in the middle of uh, barren fields.
1: <laughs> no, I was here. here.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. Frosting anyone?
1: <laughs> I was here. I took loads of drugs and I played strip card games. <laughs> After jilting my wealthy husband, my wealthy fiance at the altar, I decided I'd run off. Murder a noble family, although that's been slightly oh, covered up. And now yep. I've gone and like been part of a debauched card game and taken loads of drugs and tried to sneak into <laughs> Lord Berrien's employ. And now I'm off. <laughs> like She's kind of leaving a trail of really weird reputation behind her that I don't think Daddy's going to be very happy about.
0: No, I don't either. Daddy or sister or anybody in that family. And I mean, Juna's not exactly... Telling her to not do it, which is a bit uh, interesting.
1: Ju- Juna's chaos, though, isn't she? She I think she yeah. loves she's mischievous. I think she's like, good
2: for you, Gwen.
0: <laughs> she's got this agenda of like it's it's to protect her, but it's almost like Juna's kind of prerogative is is just so long as you are happy and you are having a good time. Yeah. And she does this with with everybody, really. You know, it's kind of that. It's the whole bringing out the the tea, that like that feeder status of like, I'll do this and that will make you happy, which will make you more comfortable with the current scenario. Mm. She's not necessarily saying like what you did was wrong or what you did was right. She's, it's like distraction tactics.
1: She's not got a real long term view either. She's very like, Juna feels very in the moment to me and I don't think she puts a lot of stock in society i mean being a servant i don't think she particularly i don't get the feel that she particularly cares about all these status games so i think mm. almost i get the sense that like gwen kind of rebelling against it is quite entertaining for her in a like not in a malicious way but in quite like a kindly way where she's like oh good for you yeah screw, screw them man, like fuck the man yeah Ugh, screw them <laughs> let's all run off and have a party she's like i don't really care i'm gonna go off and have my adventure now that will be nice But there doesn't seem to be any like sort of long term forethought. Maybe I'm wrong and she's hiding a whole bunch of stuff because she is a sneaky one. But we'll see. I get
0: the sense that she probably is. We'll see. There's a lot. I mean, mm. you know, we're we're going to talk about this later. We're probably going to talk about this for the rest of our lives until we know what it is. But flower check, flower check, flower oh, check. You know, tell and
1: us, Vicky, tell us. yeah,
0: the, the things that come out in no small questions as well when you're you're talking to them. And I mean, there's there's lovely little juicy details. The one that we just had, uh, it kind of kind of plays into this because we we're talking about the Colin de Barge situation. And mm-hmm. I did ask, I did ask Grace from Gwendolyn's perspective whether. Dwayne was her first love and whether that's why she's kind of after him. And she said, not necessarily Gwendolyn's first love. Mm. And I'm assuming it's also not Colin DeBarge. So what does that mean? Again, there's, there's also stuff from uh, Chris who was chatting to him and he was saying about, we were asking what's the deal with, with the mask, you know, what's underneath it. And we, he basically pointed us towards social media Mm. and said like the clues, to Gaius's past, they are in there. You've just got to uncover the clues. And I kind of like, you know, I might have done I've done a little bit of looking around and I can't, it's not there like, a, oh, I've got now Gaius's character sheet and I know that he was this and this was his backstory. But it did kind of make me start asking questions that kind of crop up here as well with that whole, um, with him finding the notes and that thing about Treya. And it really got me into the, what if it is, hex based you know especially if you know maybe somebody that's high up within the hex what were you in that organization or how were you affiliated to them how do you know that name to the point where you don't then just come out to the rest of the people and be like i know that this is somebody very very high up in the hex or that name does mean something to me and here's why he chose to completely just pass the note off and carry on with it which makes me wonder like that scar that he's got on his eye is it A scar that he happened by accident or is it a scar that is then covering something that would give him away as something else maybe a hex tattoo or something along those lines people
1: can't see it but i'm i'm doing eyebrow raising i'm like (laughs) what is going on i think i mean all will be revealed in time and we do get a little bit more in the next few episodes but we still have these questions
0: We do. They are burning questions. Mm,
1: I think we're going to have chat more about this in our next Superfan chat.
0: Sounds good to me. To be continued. Yeah. Oh, just no, quickly before we go, I just want to ask, what was your favourite bit about this trilogy? What do you take away from it?
1: Oh, um... I don't know if it was about this trilogy specifically, but it was in the No Small Questions afterwards when Sarah said there's potential for Deacon to come back. Yes. I'm so excited. I loved Deacon so much. He really added so much to this whole little mini arc in between the bigger arcs. And it just was so joyous to have that shake up of the dynamic. Loved it.
0: Yeah, can't wait for it to happen again and yeah. the fact that it might be happening again and things haven't been fully revealed about the warrior. <laughs> but I was going to I was going to say exactly the I same thing. Say, my favorite yeah, yeah. my favorite thing out of this this trilogy was the conversation about the warrior and the compass and like all the confused jokes that were coming out about that. But just this premise that there is somebody out there, this warrior that needs to be found that will will train this kid up to be some ridiculous compatent of legend
1: or is it just a
0: myth? it could be and that will be funny as well but it's the expansion of the world and another agenda in there that is completely conflicting with what these guys are doing yeah oh, loved it
1: yeah brilliant stuff
0: uh, so hopefully sarah gain
1: come back yeah and
0: david write her back in
1: <laughs> <laughs> come back sarah <laughs> <laughs> and i'm so excited to get on to episodes 19 through 25 Uh, which is going to be our next Superfan chat, which is probably going to end up being two hours if this mini chat is anything to go by. (laughs) Might have to
0: go through the recap bit a little bit quicker, but you want to talk about everything, don't you? I know, because it's also
1: great. (laughs) There's so many great details to pick up on. Uh, Well, till next time. Are we going to say it?
0: Until next time. Yeah, yeah. Are we doing the three-word one or the one-word one?
1: Let's go three.
0: (laughs) Okay, three. Yeah, so yeah, from uh, Superfan Sam and And from... Superfan Han, it's... (laughs) Anon. Anon. But going to get better at that. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we'll get there. We'll Anon, right. everyone. Anon.
2: wrong what's worth more than this fear right now and that
1: rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being
0: listen to deeply personal insightful and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers listen and subscribe to the unmistakable creative wherever you get your podcasts ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless
1: dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me Palmer.